Hello, listeners. This is Emily Ann from Democrats for Education Reform, and you're listening to Ed Chats from DFER's media team. From its inception, our nation's public education system has been rooted in inequity, spanning lines of race, gender, gender identity, class, sexual orientation, native language, zip code, and disability. In efforts to change the status quo, education thought leaders and political minds are revolutionizing the education space. Every month, we sit down with a few of these leaders and discuss what's being done right now to advance a high-quality, equitable education system for every student. On this week's episode, we're chatting with Tennessee State Senator Ramesh Akberi to discuss recent legislation coming out of Tennessee's Republican-controlled Senate, as well as the recent expulsion of two Tennessee legislators. We will also be chatting with Deaver's VP of Governmental Affairs, Hans Gall, obtaining his perspective on how legislation and trends coming out of Tennessee are being reflected on a national level. Um, And I did want to thank you so much for giving us your time. Like I said, I know that it is a crazy time in Tennessee right now. So even just giving us a half hour is very much appreciated. Oh, my pleasure. (laughs) And I wanted to start by, you know, getting a wider frame, looking at some of the bills coming out of Tennessee's legislature right now. Uh, We're seeing Republicans in the Tennessee House and the Senate push forward, you know, censorship bills that restrict what can be said or taught in classrooms and anti-trans rights bills, such as Governor Lee's attempts to ban gender-affirming care. You know, what steps are you taking to push back on this agenda? Well, you know, we call it um, a slate of hate. Uh, It's something that really does not in any way move our state forward. Um, it, it, It deliberately discriminates against certain populations. And so as an individual and also as a caucus, um, I'm on the education committee. Most of a lot of those bills actually do come to the education committee. So speaking out, trying to make sure that those who, you know, these these pieces of legislation will directly impact um, actually have their voices heard. And uh, I think that uh, for me, I always have to ask myself, is the legislation going to make our state better? And in this case, it's not. Uh, and it's actually going to make it less welcoming for people to come to this state or to stay in this state. And so fight back through remarks in committee on the floor, always knowing that a lot of this legislation is unconstitutional. And so what we say in the legislative record does make a difference. And then we have to rely on the judicial branch to, you know, take up the rest. You mentioned that, you know, how you think to yourself, is this going to help my state? Is this going to help Tennessee students? And I know that one of the biggest issues right now in Tennessee and across the country is learning loss and closing these opportunity gaps exacerbated by the effects of the pandemic. And as we just highlighted, you know, Republican representatives, they continue to push forward efforts otherwise. You know, what would you like to see the legislative session focus on? Well, I think I'd like us to focus a little bit more on literacy and providing additional resources. So right now, Tennessee has legislation that will retain a child at the third grade level if they do not perform well on the um, standardized test at the end of the year regardless of their grades or their teacher input, uh, they will be retained. Now, they have the opportunity to take summer school and then also to have a tutor for the rest of their, after they finish summer school, they'll have a tutor for their fourth grade year if they pass the summer school sufficiently. Um, For me, I'd prefer that we focused on tweaking that law a little bit more where we have a portfolio of, um, of, of, ways that we determine if the child does not meet literacy standards, where you do consider the teacher's input, you do consider their grades. We have a fix that the majority party has come up with, but it does not in any way address those concerns and it does not go into effect until next year. So you have kids who started kindergarten during the pandemic. And so they have not had in any way a normal pathway to the the third grade, and they have this threat of retention hanging over their heads. Do I love the interventions where they get to go to these summer learning camps? Yes. And I love the tutoring, but I don't think that we have to use the threat of retention to be able to offer those services. So I am happy the state is investing in those particular wraparounds, but the fact that, you know, you have the threat of retention, which is really stressed out parents, students, teachers, everyone, um, I, I would prefer that we did not take that option uh, because, again, 
you know, we are dealing with a, a a group of kids that have really had to grapple with the effects of learning during the pandemic. And why would we put this high standard on them as they are trying to catch up? Do you ever see in Tennessee retention having a negative effect on kids like socially or in their lives afterwards? Yeah, I, I think retention is something that is very serious. Um, it is not something that should be taken lightly. Um, if a child, obviously, we know after third grade, you should be, you know, a reading to learn, not learning to read. So it does have a dramatic impact on the rest of your life. However, retention does as well. And uh, it it puts you a, a grade behind those, your peers. Um, it it really, if you look at even how you, you'll start the rest of your life, it will put you to a certain degree. Uh, it'll put you a year behind and it just will. And so I think... Um, also, retention is not applied equally sometimes, uh, and it, it really, to me, is a nuclear option. If you can keep that child on track so that they can have the educational supports they need, but be able to continue with their class, I think that does help because it's not just about learning. It's about the social and emotional well-being. Now, I do not believe in social promotion, which is something that was being kind of used in the early 2000s uh, up until really fairly recently where regardless of the child's education attainment, you would just promote them blanketly because you didn't want you know, them to be held back. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do think you have to have interventions, but you know, putting them, putting them in, in a retention, you know, um, cycle, I think is the worst, is the worst option. Yeah. And you speak pretty strongly about literacy and retention and academic support. So what was it about education and education reform that drew you to focusing on that as an elected official? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so one, I was that child that um, I would go to the library and check out, you could check out 25 books. I checked out 25 <laughs> books. So <laughs> I love to read. I think that, it, yeah, I love to read. I think it can take you places that you couldn't normally go. It exposes you to so much. I um, mean, it really can change your life. Uh, you think about the trajectory of someone who has some sort of post-secondary education, versus someone who doesn't. And so when I came to the legislature, I just firmly, deeply to my core, felt that every child, no matter what zip code they come from, should have access to a high-quality public education, regardless. Uh, That's one of my three tenets of why I ran for office and what I've tried to accomplish in this legislature. And so that's why it's important to me. I I know I'm an attorney, so I've had to do a lot of reading. Um, And I know the impact that it can have. And when a child cannot read, it is very difficult for them to learn. It leads to behavioral issues, self-esteem issues, all sorts of things that really can impact their experience. Absolutely, it can. And, you know, do you find it difficult having to fight for education reform as a Democrat in a state that is largely Republican driven? And does your past experience being a lawyer affect you at all and maybe help you with pushing forward your agenda? Well, I definitely think, um, you know, just being able to see both sides of the issue uh, makes a difference. And then having some lines in the sand, right? Like I will support something if I know that it can be successful for the child. And like, for instance, we've had this great debate around vouchers. And for me, I have not seen a state where that type of um, policy has been successful. Right. And so that's something I know that I can't support unless it's in unless it's the legislation is written in a way where I think that that it will work. But I know that, you know, I have have great schools in my district and across the state, whether they are the traditional public school or a public charter school, and they are really doing good work to meet the needs of of the students in their community. So it's a balancing act, right? Because, you know, some people on, on the Democratic in the Democratic Party might not support, you know, certain charter schools. And then you have people on the Republican side who are saying privatize it all. And so you do have to kind of find that balance. Um, for me, I try and focus on things we can agree on. I think as a state, we all say that, you know, when we look at our standardized test scores, literacy is one of those where it it just has not, um, it hasn't grown and the pandemic exacerbated that. And so we know there has to be a solution. Sometimes it is frustrating, like when that third grade retention bill passed, I was like, this is not the answer. But unfortunately, you have to try and just make things as best as you can and uh, try and come back and fix it um, if it does pass. Yeah. And to that point, what levers have you been employing to help 
Tennessee kids closing these opportunity gaps and meet their needs that we've seen um, really ex- being exacerbated post-pandemic? Yeah, I think working closely with the Department of Education to really see what their approach is and, and how they can handle the whole child. Um, I've really pushed for community schools where you have wraparound services because oftentimes you have a family where literacy is not, um, you know, it's not really present. So it's not just a child. It's also the the parents. And, you know, if you are yourself not in a position to help your child, then that really does put both of you all at a disadvantage. Um, and so trying to focus on a two-generational approach, and that gets some crossover from the Department of Human Services, as well as the Department of Education, um, working with our local um, with our local school boards. I have great relationships with those that um, represent the area that I represent when we've dealt with possibilities of school closures. When I first got to the legislature, there was this um, move to to there's a state school district, the achievement school district. And a lot of folks in my community felt like, hey, we have schools that are actually improving. Why are they being taken over by the state? And so I, I my approach is work with all the stakeholders, right? It, it try and iron out all the details before you bring it to the floor. I worked with the achievement school district, with the Department of Education, with the local school district, and we were able to save 11 schools from state takeover because they were actually improving. Those are not the ones that are designed uh, to 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 be taken over. And that was a great piece of legislation that I think I was either a freshman or a sophomore, uh, a second year in the General Assembly. But keeping people, giving people a seat at the table uh, makes all the difference. When you show that you're a willing partner, as opposed to someone who just wants to burn it all down, I think you can find these lanes where you can really make improvements for people. It absolutely does. And you being from Memphis, I believe, Um, You know, you were being raised in this community. You went through the Tennessee education system. Was there anything that you noticed in your personal experience with the Tennessee ed system that impacted or, um, you know, changed your passion or what issues you choose to focus on? Yeah. So I'll say I I felt like I had a great public school experience. I had great teachers uh, who really motivated and uplifted me. Uh, ended up graduating from high school, very high GPA, a, a, a pretty good ACT score, 30 on my ACT, and and felt like, you know, any co- the colleges that I was considering, I, I got into all of them, Spelman, Duke, Vanderbilt, uh, Washington University, and St. Louis, and I ended up going to Wash U. And when I got there, I felt unprepared. When I, I was taking a chemistry class, and the kids around me, and we started with a nuclear chemistry. Now, mind you, Wash U, they do not play when it comes to their sciences, but I felt like I was not prepared to really do well in that course. And I was someone who had excelled all the way through school. I mean, top of my class for the most part, you know, actively involved in community service, did great on the ACT. And then I, I get to college and I'm like, wow, um, I think that some of our, and I actually said, I said, I think some of our Northern or East Coast schools and our West Coast schools, like they they offered IB at the time. We didn't. Uh, they really looked at education a little differently. And so I did feel ill-prepared. And so that for me, and I think Tennessee really had a shift after that in general, where we realized, you know, our kids were scoring really well on the TCAP. But when you looked nationally, when you looked at NAEP, we were not. And so that's when Tennessee kind of began that approach to try and try and change the narrative. And, and it did work. Um, obviously, when we rejected Common Core and and all of that, it kind of took us on a different pathway as far as standardized tests. Uh, but we, I think we're back on track. Um, and, and for me also, I'll tell you, I have a twin who, when she first took the ACT, she got a 23. She's brilliant, okay? She ended up, you know, got familiar with the test, did practice tests, ended up with a 31. And that's because she was not a good test taker. So that to me also says, you know, we put so much pressure on our kids with one standardized test. It determines, it really determines so much how the school is ranked, how the teachers are ranked, what bonuses they get, if the child is retained, all sorts of things. And so that, you know, kind of gave me a heads up that we cannot just consider that one day of testing while standardized testing is very important. We can't consider that one day as a full picture of that child. And and that has kind of motivated me while I've been in the General Assembly. Exactly. So many kids deal with test anxiety or other restrictions that, you know, can make them definitely appear ill-prepared when they're not just because it's like you said, it's one day. You never know what's going on in a kid's life that can affect their performance on that one day. 
Um, is there anything that you're personally working on or have supported to help with college readiness for kids since that was something that impacted you? Yeah, definitely. So again, the whole baseline around literacy and making sure they're more prepared, um, supporting legislation, like one of my favorite pieces of legislation to to be a co-sponsor on was a Tennessee Promise, where any child could go to school, any high school graduate could go to a community college or a school of applied technology free of charge. And Tennessee was the first state to be able to offer that. And I remember the Obama administration was in office then. And that's something that President Obama wanted to do nationwide, but could not get the support from Congress. And so he used, and this is when my state was a bit more pragmatic as well, as far as the Republicans who were in power. I remember Randy Boyd was the commissioner, was a commissioner at the time. Now he's a president of of uh, University of Tennessee. But at the time, he was on calls with with people across the country trying to tell them about the Tennessee promise. That opened up doors for kids who were in school that said, oh, wait, I can do this. I, I might not go to a four year, but I can start a two year, take for free, get my baseline credits and transfer. There's so many transfer pathways for them. I think also just uh, for me, being involved in the school, trying to make the connection, like I carry a lot of the legislation for Shelby County Schools, which is our LEA in Memphis, really trying to make the connection between what they need, what they see on the ground, and what we can do uh, on a state level. Because at the end of the day, I'm an attorney that's a legislator. I'm not a teacher. I've never been an educator. And you have to kind of get buy-in and support from from that community and get feedback from that community before you take actions. Um, and the last thing I'll say that I have felt is really important is really looking at how our school system was funded. Our school systems are funded. We were using a formula that was just antiquated and was not fully funding education. We switched to a different one last year that was controversial. Some of my colleagues did not vote for it. I did because it would put an additional $130 million in Shelby County schools. And the money actually um, was reflective of the need of the child. So if English, as a, if they were English as a second language, they were from a poor district, they were from a small district, um, there was a certain like Title I, like all sorts of things added up to that child, that individual child getting more money to be able to fund their education. And that to me is 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 important because if they don't, if the schools don't have the resources, they're not going to be able to move the kids forward. Yeah. And that's a great approach that you're taking to as someone who wasn't a former educator, um, that you surround yourself with a network of expert voices that you can listen to and that impact your decisions. I think that that's the best way that you could possibly go about it. Definitely. definitely. And I did want to ask, because if we've seen national news coverage of what's been going on in Tennessee right now, um, you know, we've been discussing text, our Tennessee's at our Republican led legislature, and we saw Republicans with a supermajority take the extreme steps to expel representatives Justin Jones and Justin Pearson for leading protests, uh, calling for gun restrictions following the recent Nashville shooting. Can you give us your thoughts on the House's decision here and kind of talk us through what you've been witnessing personally following this expulsion? You know, I definitely will. I think that um, expulsion is something that's very serious, right? In the past, the legislature has only done it for people who have committed serious acts, um, whether you have been found guilty of a crime, so you're literally no longer qualified based on the requirements to serve, or there were six members that were expelled because they did not want to enact legislation or the constitutional amendment. They refused to come to session around ending slavery in America, or you had someone who took a bribe for legislation, another one that was a serial sexual harasser. These two gentlemen and Gloria Johnson, the three, the Tennessee three, uh, they breached the rules of decorum, right? They were in the well when they shouldn't have been. Uh, they had a bullhorn. Uh, they were very um, actively, you know, tr making their voices heard around gun safety. We had a horrific shooting in Nashville where six people were killed. And, you know, that is how they chose to have their voices heard. It was a breach of house rules. Did it warrant expulsion? Absolutely not. If anything, I mean, you 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 censure someone, you you issue them a letter warning them, but to actually mm -hmm. take the extreme step of expelling someone, of negating, because you're not just doing that to that person, you're doing it to the voters who put them there. And so you're saying that their behavior was so extreme and so dangerous to the institution that it should negate the voters who put them there. And that to me is very serious. So it was a very um, surreal moment to be in Tennessee. I, the, the 
the Senate, we adjourned at 1030 that day. And so I went over to the House and I was there until they adjourned. And I was there to witness um, the three the three hearings where they proposed expelling Gloria Johnson, Justin Pearson, and Justin Jones. It was very emotional for those of us who respect and love the institution to see expulsion almost being weaponized. Uh, it was very difficult to see the Justins and Gloria so vigorously defend themselves and to know that that history was on their side. Um, it felt good to see them have the support of people from the community in the balcony. So the people in the balcony were quiet because if they made noise, they would be removed. And so instead of yelling, they would wave their hands to mean clapping. And then the people outside the doors would were so loud and they were yelling and giving their support. And so to be there, it was something magnificent to witness and to see how the world was watching and they see this attack on democracy and whatever platform Justin Jones, Justin Pearson and Gloria Johnson had before this, I tell my, my friends and my colleagues, I said, no one knew their names outside of this region last week this time. The world knows their names. President Obama, President Biden, Vice President Harris. I mean, anybody you can think of is paying attention to what's going on. And you, the, the Tennessee Black Caucus had a meeting with the Congressional Black Caucus because we know that a threat to democracy here is something that could easily spread to other supermajority legislatures. And so it, it it's very interesting that it happened on Easter week. And, you know, both Justins are Justin Jones is a student of divinity uh, at Vanderbilt. Justin Pearson is a preacher in his own right. And to draw the connections between everything that happened and how there actually will be a resurrection of sort. It has been hard to watch. It's hard to be a part of it. It is encouraging because it puts the spotlight on Gen Z and these young people who refuse to back down and the Justins and Gloria and their platform to elevate the voices of the young people because we're all here because of gun safety and because kids are tired of going to school and fearing that they will be shot and killed and people are tired of going to the grocery store and a Waffle House and, and church and not knowing whether or not they will be killed I mean, this is not supposed to be how, how folks are supposed to live. And to see these movements of kids, um, it has been surreal. Uh, but I am firmly supporting my colleagues. Now is the time for us to protect our students and to act. And I, I you know, it's a it's an example of somebody wishing something for your bad and it ended up working out for your good. And I think that's reflected in the Justin's and Gloria situation. Absolutely. I'm in Texas, too, and it's been very inspiring to see the rage expressed by Texas constituents over what's been happening in Tennessee and, you know, yeah. taking action in their own state. Yeah. Uh, are you yeah. worried at all? Or have you thought about the dangerous precedent that it can be set by breaching bipartisanship because of these expulsions? Definitely concerned. Uh, the National Black Caucus of State Legislators has kind of convened a couple of meetings off the bat. Uh, we've had other Black caucuses reach out to us, and they are concerned that this is something that could, you know, spread to their general assemblies. I will say that saving grace is that the outrage has been so, so uh, swift and severe uh, that I think even some of my colleagues across the aisle are really questioning the wisdom in, in expulsion, especially because these young men uh, will be reappointed by their local bodies. Now, they will have to run in a special election, but the type of support they've been able to generate, not just for themselves, but for the issues they support is tremendous. So, of course, we're always scared. Anytime you see a breach in democracy, you see injustice being, uh, you know, you see injustice, you know that there's a possibility that it can be replicated, especially when you look at how legislation is replicated across our southern states with our supermajorities. But we're we're we know we're vigilant. You have the NAACP, NAACP Legal Defense Fund, the ACLU. All of these folks are on the case, and I think it's really powerful that Eric Holder is Justin Jones' attorney. So that's a big deal in and of itself. It is. That's a huge deal. Um, you know, in both Tennessee and nationwide, we're seeing legislative bodies say that they're prioritizing school safety, yet they choose to focus on perceived threats such as you know drag shows and the what they pose to children versus the very real threat of gun violence. 
And as of yesterday, you know, there have been 146 mass shootings so far in the U.S., 14 school shootings with 24 people either killed or injured. Um, do you see this focus on lawmaker, from lawmakers on drag shows to be an actual prioritization of school safety and protecting children? And the, what differently can the Republican Party do to protect kids? Well, I think focus on issues that are real. Uh, stop focusing on these social issues that don't actually impact children. Uh, this generation that is is here now, Gen Z and even younger, uh, they are about individual expression and respect, and they are not okay with a, an environment where you have climate control being called a dirty word or climate change, a dirty word, a dirty phrase, and all these anti-LGBTQ uh, pieces of legislation that doesn't actually do anything. And I think that the more my colleagues dig into this type of stuff, the more antiquated they will become. And it will be very difficult for them to inspire a new generation of voters, which I think this next generation doesn't really have party loyalty. They have loyalty to issues. And I think both sides, both parties will have to grapple with that. But if you really want to improve school safety, do the right thing, right? Use use your power. It's not enough. They have this narrative where, Oh, we need to make sure the doors are locked and you have armed teachers and security guards and uh, SROs and all sorts of stuff like that. When the Covenant School shooting, uh, the teachers were armed, the doors were locked. They did have security on site. And this individual was still able to, in a very eerie and scary way, uh, breach that school and literally hunt down those those children. And so now is the time to have the courage to make a difference. How many more mothers and fathers will we have to look at who have lost their children? Can you imagine dropping your child off at school and not being able to pick them up? And then my colleagues are saying, it's not about guns. It's not, I mean, most of the issues where we see someone who should not have access to a weapon has access to a weapon and commits these mass crimes. And so- if we don't do it now, when are we going to do it? And and that's what I would urge them to do. And that's what I've been doing. We've had some good dialogue publicly and privately. Like now is the time. Uh, and, and Covenant School is a Christian private school and not a public school. Those are from the communities like our governor's kids went there. Our governor's wife's best friend, one of her best friends was one of the women killed our governor's wife taught at that school. So if we can't do something when the optics are that, it's not a, a gang shooting in Memphis or something like that where people will say, well, it's just, you know, those are lawbreakers anyway. No, no, no. It's something that we can make a difference about. And, and certainly at our schools, uh, they should kids should be able to go to school and not, not be scared that they're not going to make it home. And it's crazy that that's the baseline just that kids should feel safe going right. to school. Parents should feel safe dropping right. their children off at right. school. When I was in school, we did tornado drills, not active shooter drills. Exactly. You know, and to that point, I think, and it's a very good one about both parties having to grapple with the younger generation, having a priority towards issues and having a loyalty to issues over party lines. Um, and I'm, you know, curious because bipartisanship used to be something that was more frequent. And, you know, former Tennessee governors, you know, Bill Bridson and Bill Haslam both took a bipartisan approach to education reform, you know, pushing forward a student-focused agenda, to support marginalized and historically disenfranchised students. And Governor Lee has not followed in his predecessor's footsteps. Can you talk to us about how the Democratic Party in Tennessee is now forced to take additional steps to close some of these gaps that may have been created by Governor Lee? Yeah, I think that... Um... You know, for us, we're in the super minority. And so I'm the minority caucus. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm the minority leader. And, you know, there are only six of us. And so I've had people from, you know, my colleagues and my friends from across the country, they'll say, well, do you believe in bipartisanship? And I said, of course I do. I have to. I can't have a bill passed without my colleagues voting for it because six votes is not a constitutional majority. And I think that um, extending, you know, our support, especially around gun safety, like, look, we want to have a real seat at the table. We will support this legislation. In the House, there are 24 Democrats. That gives more cover for people when you have certain Republicans that just are not going to vote for a gun safety bill. 
And so really trying to say, look, we're here, we're ready to be partners. It has to be meaningful. Like we're not just going to stamp our, uh, our, our, our name on it, but it has to be meaningful change. But that's what I've always focused on. Anytime I have an opportunity where I can, you know, connect with my colleagues on an issue that matters and, and that we can agree on, I try to push for that. And that's what I've always done since I've been uh, in, in the general assembly. And so I've done the same thing with governor Lee, just like I did with governor Haslam. I wasn't, I was in law school during the Bredesen administration, but, uh, <laughs> But definitely, uh, it is important, and I am—I really appreciate the fact that you have Governor Bredesen and Governor Haslam. You know, taking—they have a podcast now, and so they're doing this bipartisan approach. Like, hey, we need to have cooler temperatures. Tennessee used to be a more a more pragmatic state, and we have shifted from 2018 to now into this era of, you know, if you're not on my team, I'm against you, and and I just want to stand firmly against that. Did you see that as being a slow shift or was it something that happened pretty rapidly from 2018 to now? I think that it was um, what we saw was a so in 2018, I ran for the Senate, a bunch of people retired. And so you had the largest turnover in the House uh, since Reconstruction. And so where we previously grappled with the Tea Party and you had um, kind of they were they were kind of pushed to the side by the the mainstream more moderate Republican, the more moderate Republican kind of I don't want to say disappeared, but they they their numbers were reduced significantly. The Trump era really did yield a different type of person coming into these elected offices, really across the country, and I think we have to kind of balance that ship. And and it's I'm not going to just beat up on the Republicans. I'm going to say. Um, on even though it, even I'm not going to beat up on the Republicans, but I will say that you know we have to come together and, and realize that being in the center is not always a bad thing, but also you cannot marginalize the people who are on both extremes of your party because then the blowback will be way worse if we can all come together. And I'm not naive. I am not naive or saying, you know, we have this, we should have this kumbaya moment, but you really have to have a party that makes people feel included in your, in your package, reflect that your legislative package reflect that. So, but it has gotten much more conservative. It's gotten much more difficult. Um, and I think more so in the house and the Senate, just because you have so many new members, whereas most of the people in the Senate have were in the house at one point, And a lot of them have been here in the minority when they were in the minority. And so they are not as extreme. And to that point, are there any pieces of legislation coming out of the session that you're supporting or any bills or pieces of legislation that you've put forward with your name on it? Yeah. So um still kind of working through that package, but um I passed legislation with Representative Harold Love uh, that would require the teachings of MLK and the civil rights movement to be taught in high school. Uh, right now it's taught in middle school, but not in high school. And so we we made that a requirement of another piece of legislation that really looks at statistics around ninth graders uh, as a prediction of whether or not they will be high school dropouts. So really forming the baseline, we're working with Ed Trust on that to really form the baseline of information to to see how that will um how that will inform us for other pieces of legislation. So pretty excited about that. Um, There's other stuff around uh, our HBCUs um, trying to continue to fight for Tennessee State University. They've had some significant um, turmoil, uh, especially with the legislature trying to replace their entire board. And so really trying to work with my colleagues to to even that, that because they are the only public HBCU in, in the state. There are certain things in the governor's budget that I'm really supporting. There's a group out of Memphis that I really, I met with them one time, Pure Power, and the work that they do, they partner with um, students and they mentor them and they partner them with a college student. And so there's a school in my district, Whitehaven High School. They have the 30 plus ACT club, the they have 80 people, I think, in the million dollar club as far as scholarships they've received. And so being able to get funds for peer prep, peer power has been a, a big priority of mine. And fortunately, uh, the governor put a million dollars in his budget, his amended budget for them. And so we'll see once the actual final budget passes, hopefully that number will stay. Um, I'll tell you my big thing that I've been trying to work on has to do around juvenile justice and um, 
also uh, the the expulsion, not expulsion, but the use of exclusionary discipline for kindergartners and pre-K students. Could not really work, um, get some consensus with my colleagues, so we'll work over the summer and in the fall. But that's something that's been a passion of mine for a long time, because whenever you have um, students that are not in school, they're not learning. And I think at that young of an age, you really understand the concept of being suspended or expelled. Um, and so working on that. Yeah. That those are all fantastic plans that you have on your agenda. That's amazing. <laughs> that ninth grade bill is very interesting looking to predict um, dropout, potential dropouts. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, I think I mean, ultimately, we we know that our kids our young adults have to be able to graduate and have some level of post-secondary education to really have a career that can sustain themselves and their families. And so we uh, I actively am, am, am supportive of that, because sometimes if you can provide a little bit of extra support, you can make all the difference in that person's life. Uh, and so any way that we can do that, we want we want to. And that legis that bill passed on the House floor. Uh, yesterday on Monday, uh, April the 10th, and I will uh, have it on the 13th. So hopefully we'll go ahead and get that on through. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I definitely wanted to thank you for giving sure. us that overview of Tennessee's legislative priorities and your agenda specifically. Um, I think that it very much helps shine a light of what's going on in Tennessee and the ways that people can help and plug in. Oh, yes, yeah, definitely. It's been my pleasure. <laughs> Up next, we sat down with DFER VP of Governmental Affairs, Hans Goff, to get his take from the national level on what we're seeing come out of the Hill and how certain legislation in Republican-controlled legislatures is being replicated on a federal scale. So just to kind of jump in, so as DFER's VP of Government Affairs, um, you spend a great deal of time on the Hill. Can you give our listeners an overview of a few of the education bills that are coming out of the House and Senate right now? Of course, and thank you so much for having me on. Um, you know, currently there, there are a few key issues um, finding common ground between Republicans controlling the House and Democrats very narrowly uh, controlling the Senate. Um, so we are in a, a divided government and while significant progress is unlikely, um, Democrats are very committed to putting students and family first. And we see this right in the introduction of over 80 education-related bills since January. Uh, one notable bill is the Rebuild America Schools Act. And that was reintroduced by uh, ranking member Bobby Scott in Virginia and Senator Reed. Um, and that aims to improve infrastructure of schools across the country. And another really um, important bill is the assault weapons ban, um, which has been reinduced in both the House and the Senate. Um, but I will say like as a department, uh, we continue to work towards, you know, educating and informing members of Congress and their staff. Um, and we know that Democrats, you know, even though we have a, a slim majority, the goal is for Democrats to retake the House in 2024. And so when that does happen, we're ready to push, you know, positive legislation forward to ensure that education remains a, a top priority for, for students and families. Do you think that the assault rifle bill has good potential? It's, it's you know, it's so much going on in the country that, that every week, you know, there's unfortunately, you know, gun violence on multiple fronts. And so it's top of mind for, for families, it's top of mind for legislators, but we, we do live in a, a very partisan um, environment, um, which can be caused to gerrymandered districts in a, in a lobbying group that's really aggressive, um, that, you know, it's, it's hard to say whether, you know, those, that piece of legislation will get passed, uh, but it's, it's needed. Um, and, you know, I think that what you see around the country with, um, you know, activists, you know, pushing forward to have some type of ban uh, will continue. And that's what we need to kind of keep the drumbeat going and put the pressure on uh, those that are opposed 
um, to to get the legislation through uh, through Congress and to the president's desk. That makes a lot of sense. So you think that maybe we'll see some more pressure on this bill and bills like it coming from activists and coming from even just people who are on social online? Yeah, that's right. I think it's your ordinary citizens that are like paying attention that um, are going to are going to push this movement, you know, to to more policy driven uh, actions that become law um, because it's affecting everyone, like everyone, you know, you talk to people are starting to say, yeah, I know someone that this happened to and that are affected by it, whether it's a friend, colleague or family member. Um, and th- when it gets to that level, you know, it, it's a problem. Um, and so I think, you know, people will start utilizing their voices more. Absolutely. And I want to stay on that current vein. You know, we're seeing in Tennessee right now, it's kind of transforming into somewhat of a political hotbed uh, in this current climate. Because Queen Governor Lee's attempted ban on gender affirming care, censorship restrictions on classroom material for educators, and the recent expulsion of two Tennessee representatives. Are you seeing any of the bills coming out of Tennessee being replicated on a federal level? Yes, another another good question. Um, You know, unfortunately, Tennessee is is merely the latest in a growing list of states that have gained national attention for their regressive policies. Um, Nevertheless, I find it inspiring that young people in Tennessee and, you know, throughout the country have taken a stand, um, both you know, literally and figuratively against lawmakers who are pushing for, you know, the enactment of such policies. Um, while it's true that, you know, many of these states now have Republican-controlled legislators, even like super majorities, you know, these young people are demonstrating that the future is, in a way, that's already here, you know, and that many Republicans may not have control for much longer. And I think, you know, they know that. Um, and what we're witnessing really is attempts by the far right to Im- implement those kind of regressive state policies at the federal level. You know, it's really disheartening to see that, you know, protecting guns over children or banning books, you know, rewriting history in states, um, discriminating, discriminating against trans individuals are all being prioritized. You know, we're thankful that Senate Dems do have the, you know, have a slim majority in the Senate. So these bills, you know, don't have a huge chance of passing. Um, But that's why it's critical for folks to cast their vote and make their voices heard and go to the ballot box. Because without, you know, the the slim majorities that we won, you know, last cycle in Arizona, Pennsylvania and Georgia, you know, we'll be facing an even grimmer reality with, you know, some some of those type of policies. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Tennessee is not the only one, as you mentioned, I mean, between Texas, Florida, I mean, a lot of our southern states, I mean, we're seeing the same thing being replicated. And, you know, as we had touched on the expulsion, short-lived as it was, thankfully, of Tennessee representatives Justin Pearson and Justin Jones, it did set a dangerous precedent of lawmakers on one side of the aisle taking punitive action against Democratic electeds. What are some of the potential effects a move like this could have on local and national democracy? Yeah, I mean, it's dangerous. Uh, this was the first time something of this magnitude has happened as far as expulsion of as a legislator for like a non-criminal activity. So democracy is definitely, you know, democracy is a fragile thing. I think we've seen this over the last, you know, eight years of like, you know, how fragile this institution is. You know, we've been fortunate enough and blessed that, you know, this country has had these, you know, this this institution, right? And there was a lot of a lot of blood and a lot of, you know, uh, a lot of people have been invested to make this country as great as it is. But we do see that, you know, this this pulling, right? This tension. Um, and you can feel it in cities, states, and federally um, that uh, we have to we have to protect our institutions. Um, and so I think people are becoming more and more aware of that um, and that, yeah, there's, there's definitely greater attention to um, 
to yeah to our democracy quite honestly and uh it's a uh, you know, at the where I sit, you know, as as the VP of governmental affairs, it's like you're in it every day. Like you're in DC, and you kind of you know work with different legislators, and you're in this bubble. But uh, you know, it could be taken away, you know, relatively quickly. Like we saw what happened in Tennessee, and 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 thank God they stood up, and I call it like another civil rights movement happened where people paid attention. And I think people are going to keep paying attention, and that's what that's what we have to keep the pressure on because it's easy for folks to, you know, go you know pay attention for a moment and then go against their daily lives and kind of forget. Uh, but uh, you know, other other entities are at play. They're you know they are wanting to uh, disenfranchise folks, and we have to be sure that that doesn't happen. And what are some ways that we can keep people paying attention past a 24-hour news cycle? Yeah, that's a difficulty. Um, I think that the news media is, uh, you know, when we have 24-hour cable news, there's always something going on and uh, people are, people have, you know, responsibilities and, you know, and and their lives. Um, You kind of have to, use media in a way that target individuals where where they consume information. You know, I think that before social media, before the 24-hour news cycle, it was only a few ways and mechanisms people consume news and media, but now it's so vast. You know, people are on their phones. Uh, Videos are 10 seconds, 30 seconds, and it's like very short snippets of information. People's attention spans are becoming shorter and shorter. And so just as media has changed, like our method to reaching individuals has to change too. You have to be more nimble. You have to be more creative. Um, and I don't, and use technology. Like technology is constantly changing. You know, before it was, you would, you know, do a canvassing, a door knocking operation, knock on someone's door, folks don't open doors anymore. So it's like, what are those mechanisms and ways that you could kind of reach people? Um, so I think, yeah, I think the answer to that is just like, look at the new tools that are out there, be nimble, reach, reach people and, uh, exciting in new ways. Uh, you know, I, you know, I, I, I still assume media through, you know, uh, clips in the mornings and, and I, I consider myself a, a older millennial. Um, so I'm not on TikTok, but, uh, some of my younger friends and colleagues are, and that's how they consume news. So it, it's not a one one way approach. And I think that's what's different. Whereas like before, it was like, I'm just gonna put this ad up on this stream or this uh, platform, where now you have to use all the tools that's uh, that's available to kind of reach the, the majority of people. Yeah, and getting through the challenge of making people care about an issue that might not necessarily affect them. That's right. You know, like every morning in the news, we're seeing culture wars, for example, dominating the conversation surrounding in-school climates for students, instead of the focus being on necessary topics, such as closing equity gaps, restoring mislearning for students, and increasing funding for academic supports, like tutoring interventions. What is your takeaway on ways that we can work to shift the national conversation to key issues instead of this consistent anti-trans, anti-LGBTQ, and racist rhetoric? Yeah, another another good question. You know, I alluded to this a little while ago, but this is a this is a particular moment in history. You know, it, it feels like you know at times we are on campaigns. You always say this campaign is important. This is going to change. You know, the trajectory of our lives. But you feel that, like you feel every campaign and the moment we're in. Like this is these are historic moments. Things that are unprecedented are like happening, um, and we're living through that. So. We are in that in, a, in another civil rights uh, movement and moment, but I do believe we're on the winning side of that. Like coming to defer and earn, you know, I love the work that we do, um, and it can get daunting. Uh, whether it's our work or other, you know, grassroots activity work that are trying to fight through that white noise, but um, you know. The pastor of my church, you know, always says like light comes in the morning. And so that's what you kind of have to keep you going and keep you focused that, you know, it's uh, it has become harder to communicate 
positive messages, but as long as we don't give up, I do think that we will change hearts and minds. And that's what, you know, that's what keeps me going. I love that. You kind of have to see the positive. Otherwise, to your point, you get so bogged down by all the negative conversations that it can be hard to find and keep hold of that positive mentality. Yeah, that's right. So we touched on this too, but you know, we are all aware of the negative and long-lasting effects that misinformation, especially the lack of media literacy, has on the American public and our education system. In order to focus our attention on where it needs to be in order to close these opportunity gaps with students, what do you believe needs to change to have these productive conversations that can actually lead to meaningful action for kids? Yeah, I think, you know, listeners should know that there's a team of people in D.C. fighting for a student-centered agenda. Um, you know, we always put the student first before the circumstance. Um, and I think that we are beginning to see people organize their communities and raise their voices for a high-quality public education. Um, and as more and more people make their voices heard, I do believe we'll see the conversation change and shift. Uh, that will lead to, you know, more meaningful action uh, for our young people. So, um, you know, we have to keep organizing is a, is a short answer to that and, uh, and, not, and not let up because uh, it's, it's great to know that you are on the right side of an issue and that, you know, uh, we, you know, the majority, you know, when you look at polling and you talk to parents and families and students, you know, the issues that we fight for, they they care about and they want. And, you know, it's about uh, equity and it's about um, giving opportunity to everyone. And it's good to be on that side of the issue. And what gives you hope from the future from what you've been witnessing on the Hill or in D.C.? What gives me hope? Um, the the connect like it, the connections, like you see that there's momentum. You see that um there's a start of something big and the partnerships and the the coalition building um i love the synergy that i'm witnessing like every week like there's another big uh you know uh collaboration on the work in the works uh, i have a, a great team that i work with you know uh scott quinn who i just brought on as a as a deputy you know we work, we we do meetings together and you're literally you're educating legislators you're educating staff you're working with champions and allies and you're persuading people that might not have the information that you have access to and once they you know they become aware of the information and the facts that they you know they will become you know allies and um is is what gives me hope and what gives me you know what brings me joy to do the job is finding alignment on issues with with members. And um, we have a lot of policy priorities. And um, you know, there's 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 room for people that might not agree with one to agree with another. And there's um, you know, a door hasn't been shut. And that's what, you know, that's what keeps me going is being able to 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 fight and to elevate the the policies for what I care about. That's amazing. And I wanted to thank you for giving your time today to talk to us and talk to us so impassionately um, about some of these pretty heavy topics. No, I appreciate it.